So hello and welcome to this Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Jasani. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Stein Neeson to the podcast. Stein is a European specialist in internal medicine and a lecturer in internal medicine here at the RVC. He's really uh, very much something of an expert in the field of veterinary endocrinology. He has a PhD in diabetes mellitus and is vice president of the European Society of Veterinary Endocrinology. So thanks very much, Stein, for joining me today. You're very welcome. Thank you. Um, So Stein, today I wanted to talk about diabetes mellitus. Um, As some of the listeners will know, this month, um, November 2013, is Pet Diabetes Month in the United Kingdom. So basically a nationwide campaign to raise awareness of this disease in dogs and cats and to promote testing for it. What I was hoping to do today was to kind of briefly review the disease and especially highlight any notable differences that there are between dogs and cats. And then I'd like to finish by talking in a bit more detail about diabetic remission in cats um, and about the work that you and others are doing in that area here at the RBC. So I hope that sounds okay. Um, So basically, could you please start by kind of summarizing what diabetes mellitus is and also whether the disease is seen more commonly in certain types of cats or certain types of dogs? Yeah, no problem. Uh, First of all, every month is diabetes month in my (laughs) mind, (laughs) so not just November. Uh, But yeah, um, diabetes, if we want to quickly summarize it, would be a pathological hyperglycemia. Glucose goes too high above the reference interval for pathological reasons. And there are two groups of reasons for that. Either we don't have enough insulin, and that's basically what we see in dogs, or the insulin doesn't work as well, and we often speak about insulin resistance and that's the situation we see in cats although it is slightly more complicated than that in cats (laughs) and and i'm sure we'll go into that uh, later on as well because it's not as straightforward as just insulin resistance in the cat okay great so pathological hypoglycemia and um one of the things i wanted to ask you was in terms of the terminology because i must admit that myself personally over the years i've been kind of more or less clear at different times about the the terminology Um, So terms that people may have come across include type 1 and type 2 diabetes, adult and juvenile onset, insulin-dependent and non-insulin-dependent. And I was wondering if you could please confirm what terminology we should be using nowadays in veterinary patients and also just clarify the differences between the terminologies. Yeah, I mean, um, good question. Actually, we haven't agreed completely in veterinary (laughs) medicine what we should be doing. And there's still a tendency to to go for the comparable human terminology. And the human terminology is very much about types of diabetes, with type 1 being the immune-mediated destruction of beta cells, which we tend to see in younger people, and that's why it's often called juvenile-onset diabetes mellitus. But even in human medicine, they wouldn't like to call it as much like that anymore and just stick to the type 1 uh, nomenclature uh, rather than uh, saying that it is associated with a certain age because there are variations there. And that's the same with type 2, although you would expect that uh, the majority of people suffering from that being slightly older, we also increasingly see that in younger people as well, especially with earlier onset of obesity. So type 2 is often called the type that we see in cats 
where we have a combination of insulin resistance and beta cell dysfunction. And then we've got some other types as well, which we are increasingly recognizing. So this whole group of type 2 diabetes is actually quite quite a uh, yeah, collection of all kinds of other uh, subtypes um, that we need to be aware of. So it's, very, it's a very good question because it's an evolving field and therefore okay. the names need to evolve with it. But type 1 for dogs and type 2 for cats is, is at the moment pretty much accepted and it's probably um, um, good enough for, for this moment in time. Okay, and so uh, is it fair to say broadly that so basically to sort of summarize that I guess is type 1, so seen most common in dogs and would that be the type where so you get beta cell destruction and therefore you basically get a lack of actual insulin. Yeah. Type 2 seen more commonly in cats has some complicated subtypes that need to be clarified. But that would be the type where it's more a, a, a case of insulin resistance. So you could have higher circulating levels of insulin, but the body's resistant to its effects? Yeah, and initially, yes. Um, although not, not every cat, for instance, that is obese, um, will become diabetic. Although initially they will have higher insulin levels, some of them will keep those higher insulin levels and are absolutely fine. Okay. Whereas others will start to suffer, okay. as in their pancreata, which is the plural of pancreas, which is an awkward word, but hey. Um, <laughs> I think that <laughs> the, pancreata. the pancreata are going to suffer and, and therefore in the long run they decrease their capacity of being able to produce insulin and then we end up with diabetes. Now those two groups, the one that doesn't go on to um, develop diabetes and the one that does, there is a difference between them and that implies that type 2 diabetes and diabetes in the cat is not just a phenomenon of okay. insulin resistance. There's something more going on with that beta cell function. In terms of uh, the division in insulin dependent and non-insulin dependent, that's, that's one we want to move away from okay. uh, because type 2 originally called non-insulin dependent well actually they need insulin at least in the long run most of the times. Yeah. So yeah. let's not call it according to how we're going to treat it because that might be different different in different cases. Okay, that's cool. And um, we'll talk at the end about cats and diabetic remission, etc. But um, would we see some dogs that had type 2 diabetes? Very, very, very rarely. Okay. So it's very safe to assume that we've got a dog in front of, of, of us, especially if it's a neutered dog and male dogs, so male and female neutered, that that's a type 1 diabetic dog. Okay, excellent. And um, so then just moving on to kind of touch on the clinical signs, um, I guess people will know, but it never hurts to remind them in terms of are there some classical signs and... Also, do the, the kind of classical clinical signs tend to vary between dogs and cats? Um, yeah, there are some uh, classical signs, and yes, there is a difference. So classical signs, typically we're talking about polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia, and weight loss as the typical signs of diabetes mellitus. But quite often, cats won't show all of those signs. Okay. And quite often, polyuria, polydipsia is a predominant presenting picture for the cat and not so much weight loss. In fact, many of them are overweight, and that's the reason why they got diabetes in the first place 
first place, whereas the dog adheres more to those classical four clinical signs. And then there are some more wishy-washy signs like lethargy, uh, bad fur coat, um, and maybe some mobility issues as well, uh, which are predominantly found in the cat who suffers from diabetic neuropathy. The cats are just doing their own thing again, right? <laughs> Once again, yeah, they're not playing ball. There it is. Um, and in terms of the diagnosis then, you know, I don't want to, like, are there some kind of diagnostic criteria that we say, right, tick, 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 you've got diabetes mellitus? Yeah, we want to have the clinical picture. And then we want to be able to reliably record that the glucose is abnormal, uh, both in the blood and in the urine, uh, ideally, because we can be fooled, especially by, once again, the cat, mm. uh, with stress hyperglycemia occurring, a uh, combination of maybe some muscle contraction produces some lactate, which is transformed into glucose, okay. and some hormones that are being shed as soon as this cat enters our practice, um, which, which results in a, in a stress. Stress, a physiological stress response and higher glucose levels. So we have to watch out with that because that can also result in glucosuria. So both hyperglycemia in the blood and glucosuria can occur with stress and with diabetes mellitus in the cat. So that's a, a, a real conundrum for us. Okay. So when you say reliably, then what's the solution to that conundrum? Yeah, uh, well, especially in the cat, it would be, if there's any doubt, it would be uh, indicated to, to look at a measure of longer-term glucose control, and the fructosamine is of interest there. Incidentally, and um, I apologize for this plug, but we, we, <laughs> we, we do run free fructosamine evaluations for every diabetic cat in the UK. Um, yeah. The reason why we do that is because we are very research active, and we're, we're really uh, keen on uh, achieving a diabetic bank of sample sure. data, um, and, and that's our, that's our trick to get people to send in blood samples on which we then can do research. So vets in <clears throat> practice can send samples here. Yeah, we'll run them. We'll run what, a so free fructosamine. Do, do they need to provide much information about the case? Or um, yes, they do, and we've got some specific submission forms on our CIC website, so rvc.ac.uk forward slash CIC, and there are submission forms there. Okay, so and I'll put the link for that when we publish the podcast. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Excellent. Um, so I wanted to briefly touch on the treatment as well, but I know that in some ways, and we were talking about this before we started recording, we could just do a podcast on the approach to therapy. Yeah. Um, and I don't really want to go off on that kind of tangent um, today. We Clearly, insulin therapy is required following diagnosis, at least initially and for a period of time. And then again, we'll talk about diabetic remission in cats. Um, but one of the things I really wanted to ask you today was, I know that since I graduated kind of maybe 14 years ago or something, that there have been new manufacturers and new products available in the sort of field of exogenous insulin therapy. And I guess it would be great if you could sort of summarize broadly what the types of insulin are that are available and also, I guess, answer the question really whether it really matters which insulin vets in practice are opting to use or not. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's one clear answer and a one less clear answer. The clear answer is that if we're dealing with a diabetic that has gone wrong, and that's the diabetic ketoacidotic patient, we're really best off to give short-acting insulins regularly. So we're more aggressive in insulinizing, if that's a verb. We'll make it a verb. The I'm going to hold you for today. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, so to insulinize these animals to get rid of the ketones, that's a main target 
target with diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, and, and the best tool to, to use there is a short-acting insulin, also called neutral insulins. Um, and, and that's a clear choice. We, we really should see that as the gold standard. And now, so actually what I hope you and I can do one day in the future is to come and do a podcast just on diabetic ketoacidosis. I think that would be quite interesting to to do. And um, just to say, so neutral insulin, also known as rapidly acting, also known as soluble? Absolutely, yeah. All the, all the same stuff. Again, yeah, yeah. Uh, some, some are differently cool because they are manufactured by, manufactured by a different manufacturer, okay. uh, but it's all the same stuff, and there doesn't seem to be a difference between the various soluble or neutral insulins. Okay. Uh, they're all short-acting. We can use them intravenously or intramuscularly, which is a great advantage because we want to get the, uh, insulin into the animal, and the animals are often dehydrated, so subcutaneous insulin injections are not ideal in yeah. that sense. Now, that's the clear answer. The, the less clear answer would be what type of insulin is best to use in a normal, regular, non-diabetic ketoacidotic animal. Um, and that's, um, I guess, in, in the UK and in Europe, continental Europe, we're, we're, rit- we're a bit restricted by the cascade system. And the only um, 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 insulin type currently registered for veterinary use is caninsulin, um, um, and, and that's the insulin, therefore, that we uh, ought to be going for. However, it is recognized that not every animal will show a perfect response to it, and the cats are particularly funny with that yet again. I think this is the third or the fourth <laughs> time that we mention that. So the cats um, have an issue with all kinds of insulins in that they tend to not respond as long-to-one injection of insulin. So insulin duration is an issue with cats. Um, and that's why we, we sometimes go off cascade, and we're allowed to as well if the caninsulin, the only insulin uh, that is registered for veterinary use, does not do the trick in any animal, dog or cat. But in the cat, like I said before, it, it occurs more often. So, so then, before then we'll go for a different one. Okay, so yeah. before caninsulin, we were using off-licensed products. Yeah. Now caninsulin is licensed we need to use that first and then um, so basically every animal should be started on that and you need to assess their response to that therapy before deciding whether you need to go off cascade and use a different product yeah okay yeah and in terms of um, other types of products yeah and um, I know your podcast is uh, becoming increasingly popular so we'll (laughs) we'll hopefully have some listeners around the world who are not uh, obliged to abide by the cascade system Um, and and that that makes uh, it more easily possible to to go straight away for other types of insulin and they have been investigated as well Uh, we're currently investigating some here as well as part of a clinical trial and and the insulin types to think about there are glargy gene and PZI insulin. Um, These insulins, insulin treatment is always based on trying to mimic the pancreatic function, and the pancreas is fantastic at it, providing (laughs) the the right amount of insulin at the right moment in time. And Mm. and once that doesn't function anymore, that system, then we are trying to do a half sort of amateuristic job at mimicking the, uh, the beta cell function, and that's what we're trying to do. And the problem with insulin has always been, how can I make it last? long enough. Uh, Glargine uh, is a type of insulin that is syn- synthetically produced and, and they've sort of amended the amino acid frequency, uh, uh, sequence 
and that has led to it being um, uh, longer active. It okay. forms little clumps under the skin, which then is degraded little by little into actual insulin molecules, which then circulate around the body and do their job. So a bit of a depot kind of effect. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Another insulin type that is uh, to be mentioned in that sort of category is datimir, uh, which is increasingly used in cats, but also in dogs. Uh, the one uh, thing to remember with datimir in dogs is that we use it at a decreased dose because um, in dogs, uh, okay. because in dogs they are very sensitive to that type of insulin, so we have a different kind of dosing regimen for that. Then PZI is yet another type of insulin. Again, um, the manufacturers played a trick there uh, with, with uh, combining it with zinc molecules to make it last longer as well. So this is all aimed at trying to make it last longer because we don't want pet owners to be injecting four, five, six times a day sure. um, because the compliance would be very low and the number of people going for this sort of th- treatment would be very low as and, well. Um, <clears throat> so for vets in practice, um, at least in the UK and in Europe, really they should be using can insulin and then and then changing to other types of insulin therapy is that <clears throat> sorry excuse me is that something that uh, you would think that that should be done in the hands of kind of referral specialists or is it very much a case of vets in practice could also consider changing off can insulin if they weren't happy with the responses they were getting? Yeah, probably both. Uh, We have to differentiate between why is this animal not responding well to the the regular insulin, the the usual insulin that should be given, Um, and that could be quite a complicated reason, or it could be the insulin type. What what we do find is that vets um, swap insulin quite quickly, um, um, and and therefore we see quite a few animals in which they, they have seen three, four types of insulin, yet we actually find a reason within the animal that explained why there was a problem with the insulin response. I'm just smiling as you're saying this because um, I know that you, tell, you say that to us as well, really. Yes, <laughs> yes. On my service, I think we're, we're a little bit more trigger-happy than, than yeah. you would like us to be sometimes, and I'm kind of like, yeah. But I, I guess um, it is difficult because I don't want to put blame at the hand of my, my colleagues at all because yeah. uh, I think what, what <clears> is underlying all this is that there is a lack of understanding and and, and, and be- because, well, the reason for that is a lack of research in actually coming up with the evidence base to say, well, actually, this insulin type works the best in most cases versus this insulin type. And for that, we would need to design randomized clinical trials, um, which is something we're very excited about here at RVC because we are actually doing that at this moment in time. Um, So, and if we can come up with the evidence base, then it will become much more clear what we should be doing as a gold standard treatment. So on that subject then, so if I sometimes see kennel sheets for internal medicine patients in the hospital that are on Glargine, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I don't tend to kind of go into the detail of why they're on that product, Mm -hmm. but um, so would we be using that sometimes as a first line in our new diagnoses as part of a study? Um, As part of a study, uh, yes, uh, certainly, and sometimes as part of the the individual clinical care. Uh, We have to be careful of that because it's not veterinary registered, but at times we've got a specific reason reason why 
why it is better yeah. and why the uh, veterinary registered insulin would not work. Yeah, Again, I would emphasize that the veterinary registered insulin, can insulin, does the trick in many, many yeah. cats and dogs. So it is great that we've got that uh, to our disposition, uh, but it does mean that, that some, some cats and dogs do not respond to it well enough. Yeah, and, and I, guess, I guess that's what you guys, you know, you're specialists in the area, and you would be seeing this sort of tiny end of the wedge of more difficult cases. Um, that's cool. The, the yeah, I mean, the question is, is it a tiny end of the wedge? Yeah, um, sure. and it might not be, uh, but again, research will help us answer that question. Excellent. Um, and then before we talk about the, the diabetic remission in cats thing, I wanted to just um, briefly mention something else that I've always kind of wondered a little bit about, which was um, kind of oral therapy and a sort of oral hypoglycemic drugs. I might, I might be wrong about this, but I get the impression that they're potentially used more often in human medicine. And let's say if, you know, you can correct me about that. Um, and I guess I just wondered if you could just tell us what products are available and, and sort of why don't we use them in the veterinary world really? Yeah, um, we probably all have friends or family that, that are affected by diabetes mellitus, often type 2 diabetes mellitus, and, and we'll see that those people tend to be initially at least on some form of oral medication. One of the most uh, favorite ones is metformin, uh, but there are plenty of other ones as well. There's actually a flurry of medication because it's quite a, an interesting field for pharmaceutical mm. uh, companies to operate in with this pandemic of diabetes occurring at <laughs> this moment in time. Um, now, some would argue that actually in human medicine, at times we keep people too long on just oral medication as well, and that's because people don't want to inject themselves. Uh, but in fact, if we would be slightly more aggressive with uh, starting insulin injections earlier, we would see less side effects from diabetes mellitus or less complications. Now, the situation is different in uh, veterinary medicine. First of all, the only category of patients that would be suitable for oral hypoglycemics would be cats, not dogs. Dogs need insulin definitely yeah. because they have lack of insulin producing capacity. They need it replaced. Yeah. Now in cats there could be a population of cats that could also benefit from oral hypoglycemics. And the one category that has been proven to make a difference um, is uh, glipizide or sulfonylureas, which are drugs uh, that stimulate the beta cells to produce more insulin. Okay. Now, um, we would say that we would rather have a cat start straight away on insulin, though, because as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, um, insulin resistance is only part of the story okay. In feline diabetes, they also have a problem with their beta cell, with producing the insulin. And if we start using a class of drug that actually is basically pushing these yeah. beta cells mm -hmm. to produce more insulin, we actually can cause more harm than good. Um, and that sort of links in with the diabetic remission theme. If we want to, and, and that is possible, try to achieve remission, diabetic remission, which can occur in the cat, not in the dog, um, only exceptional cases in the dog where we have different etiologies of the diabetes, but in principle only in the cat. If we first treat them with a drug that is pushing and pushing and pushing this beta cell to the brink, mm -hmm. um, and then we start to treat properly with insulin, uh, we actually decrease the chance that we end up okay. with diabetic remission because we actually have harmed the one organ that we <clears throat> want to get as healthy as possible, which is the pancreas, the beta cell. 
Interesting. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, that kind of takes us on to talking a little bit about um, the diabetic remission <clears throat> in cats. And, I mean, obviously the, the notion that a cat with diabetes can go into remission is, is fantastic um, because, as we all know, you know, the disease has many implications and consequences, not just to the cat in terms of the management and the interventions that, that the cat has to endure, but obviously, of course, significant challenges to the human carers of that cat in terms of how they have to adapt their lifestyle, their financial situation, and so on. So clearly the idea that a cat could go into diabetic remission <clears throat> seems like a very attractive um, notion. And I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you was, do we have kind of definitional criteria to say, okay, this cat is now in remission? So it sounds a bit of an obvious word in a, in a way, uh, question in a way, but how do we define remission? Yeah, it's a very obvious question, and it's very weird that it hasn't been answered properly okay. yet. Uh, and it should be answered. Um, I've uh, just worked with my PhD student who works on the topic of feline diabetic remission um, on a systematic review of the literature. And we looked at 35 articles that have been published over the last few years with the words diabetes, cat, and remission in it. And we actually found that different people classify differently, okay. um, and, and some don't <laughs> even bother classifying what they mean with diabetic remission. So it's very hard for us to then reproduce studies like that or to uh, communicate with each other because it's a different thing for different people. Now, what we propose on the basis of that literature review um, is that we, we just um, start to agree with each other. And I think a fair definition would be that diabetic remission constitutes having a cat uh, without hyperglycemia for about four weeks without the need of intervention in terms of insulin therapy. Okay. So no insulin is necessary for four weeks, yet we still have a cat that is non-diabetic. The exception in terms of intervention would be diet. So we would still allow a diabetic diet to be given during that period uh, because that's more a preventative measure maybe than, than anything else, or, although it has a bit of a therapeutic angle as well. But, but that's our uh, yeah, proposition as such, but we need to get the rest of the world to agree with us as well. But at least it's a start to make it a topic to say, guys, we need to sit together and, and, and just decide this is what we call diabetic remission so that we can do studies and so that we're talking yeah. about the same thing. And um, do, do they have some kind of agreed definition in, in human medicine or not? Um, they do, and they take it uh, way further than the four weeks, and they talk about a year okay. of um, a non-diabetic state without the need of therapeutic intervention. Um, so the four weeks is way less ambitious. And I guess it, it correlates with the lifespan of a cat versus a human being as well. Yeah, fair enough. Um, <clears throat> so I know that um, at the RVC there's recently been established a feline diabetic diabetic remission clinic um, and I guess I wanted to ask you if you could sort of let us know apart from you who else is involved in that work um, and I guess sort of summarize what your aims of the clinic are intended to be yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's all part of our bigger endocrinology group at the Royal Veterinary College, which constitutes basic scientists. Uh, many of them are, are actually based in, in our Camden campus, um, and, and many clinician and clinician researchers who are based at the Hawkshead campus. And together, we're trying to solve many uh, endocrine dilemmas, ranging from Cushing's to acromegaly to diabetes mellitus as well. So within the diabetes mellitus activities, we have a 
establish this uh, okay. initiative. Um, and um, the one, one main person to mention there is Ruth Gostelo, who is my PhD student, uh, but is also an American specialist in veterinary internal medicine. So she's highly qualified to be managing the feline diabetic remission clinic. Mm. Uh, so she she's very much uh, the person that people get in touch with when they have a possible candidate to be submitted to um, the diabetic remission clinic. And the whole point of this project is that we now recognize that diabetic cats can go into diabetic remission as in not needing insulin anymore, which is a fantastic end result, but we don't know how that works and which cats would be more likely to go into remission um, than others um, and, and which particular treatment protocols favor diabetic remission. And there's a lot of gospel around, uh, loads of non-randomized clinical trials okay. and loads of people that are more enthusiastic than scientific about the topic. And enthusiasm is great, but when it starts to blur the signs, then we can get into uh, difficult and sometimes dangerous situations yeah. as well because we're still giving a drug that has many benefits, but it can also cause dangerous hypoglycemia. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's time that we get the facts straight, and that's that's basically our attempt. So I guess, I guess from what you're saying, because I guess one of the questions that <clears throat> a vet in practice listening to this at the moment will be thinking is, if I've just diagnosed a cat as being diabetic, or I guess two things really, what can I do to try and help this cat go into remission? And secondly, what is the likelihood that this individual cat will go into, into remission? And I guess I'm getting the sense that those are things that we're trying to answer, but we wouldn't be able to offer robust data for at the moment? Or? Correct, yeah. correct. Okay. There are some, um, some suspicions. One of the suspicions being that if we do an incredibly good job at controlling the glycemia, then we have a higher chance of obtaining that remission. Uh, but we, we don't know what, what that means, an incredibly good job, uh, okay. which, which insulin type should we be using at which dose? Um, do we need to do a bunch of tests to exclude pancreatitis or not? Do we definitely need to do that urine test to exclude a urinary tract infection? Those are all things that 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 are uh, question marks so uh, we would love for people to actually think about us to help us solve those question yeah. marks and then we can work together the diabetic remission clinic at the royal veterinary college with the referring vet together working towards uh, an individual success in that particular patient achieving great glycemic control to the best of our abilities yeah. with great incentives for the clients as well because we've got loads of goodies that we can <laughs> offer in terms of free diabetic pet food and free insulin and free visits to the RVC but at the same time they will keep visiting their local vet because we very much plan to work together uh, and that's the individual success that we hope to achieve but with the bigger picture being if we uh, book uh, loads of individual successes, but in a very strict, structured mm. way as part of a clinical trial, then if we afterwards look at the data, we actually can start to answer questions and say, okay, this is an insulin type that just works on average better. Yeah, so sure. if you want to start a cat on, um, on insulin and you want to aim for diabetic remission, then this is your best shot at this dose for this um, a sort of uh, frequency with this type of food um, and definitely look at this underlying disease. And if you get those points all straight, then you have 
X percent chance yeah, of remission. And that, that's something we ought to come up with so that we can be straight with the owners of these pets as well and say, okay, these are the facts. You now can make the decision whether or not you want to go for the treatment in the first place. And these are the types of treatments with these advantages that you could sure. opt for. So basically, I guess what we're saying is we're hoping in the end to come up with a sort of <clears throat> a uh, uh, as as evidence based as possible best clinical practice guidelines to how to get started, but with the caveat that you might then need to go on and make adjustments, obviously on an individual patient basis. But at least we're starting from a much more robust place than we currently are at. Yeah, absolutely. And anyone who has ever visited a hospital um, for, for their own health issues or for other people's health issues, they will come across protocols mm. where uh, on an evidence base, a gold standard is set out. And we are severely lacking those protocols in veterinary medicine, but especially in diabetes management as well. Okay. And this is our effort to address that issue. Excellent. And um, just before we finish, I, do, do we have any idea based on the data that is available or is it really not robust enough to even be saying such a thing but do we have any idea of the kind of likelihood that any individual cat will go into remission is there a percentage that we could float out there for people yeah i mean there's a wide range of percentages that have been reported in those suboptimal trials uh, ranging from 15 percent to 90 and 100 percent now i must mention that 100 percent was was in a very small study of eight cats which were quite specific cats from Australia as well nothing against Australians but uh, a very small study but they might be different kind of cats than, than people yeah. uh, see in the rest of the world as well so there's this wide range of percentages I suspect that we're talking about 50% or so of newly diagnosed diabetic cats that with really good treatment can go into remission which is a lot which is a lot and we didn't really have that perception before we, we started treating with reasonably good treatment methods as we are doing now. Um, incidentally, with um, my research students, as part of their degree, they do research projects, um, we've just been uh, doing some number crunching um, of the diabetic remission rate in the United Kingdom on the basis of the samples that vets have been sending okay. to the RVC in return of the free fructosamine. We've, we've been looking at percentages there, and that is uh, considerably lower. So we're talking about the 20 percent or so okay. and i suspect that's a sign that we're still not getting it completely right in the united kingdom and we can do better can do better awesome um and what i'll do is when we when we post the podcast as well as the link to cic i'll obviously obviously put links to the diabetic remission clinic as well and so people want to get in touch find out more um then then they can do that um also i think you know there's other things that we can come back and talk about in the future apart from dka i think one of the other things is the dietary management of diabetes and again that will be something that that will be interesting to discuss and also to get an update on how things are going with the clinic um again at, at some point in the future that'd be awesome um but i think for today that then we'll, we'll leave it at that for now and thank you so much for for taking the time up what i know is a very busy day for you today already uh to come and discuss this with me and i hope that um you know, that the clinic goes from strength to strength and that you guys kind of achieve some of the aims that, that we've discussed today. Um, and so to the listeners, as always, I just wanted to say, obviously, feel free to 
provide your feedback. And if you have any kind of questions related to what we've discussed today, um, I can obviously go and chat to Stein about them for you, as well as the, um, the contact details that I'll leave for you when we publish the podcast. Um, and so in terms of getting in touch, it's just the usual contact details. So you can email me directly at schasani at rbc.ac.uk. You can use the Facebook page or you can tweet us at Royal Vet College with the hashtag SAClinPod. Um, and before we sign off, Stein, was there anything else you wanted to say or are we done? No, well, I would say if, if you live in the southeast of the UK and you diagnose a diabetic cat in the next few weeks to months or even years, think think about sending your cat initially to us and then we'll work together to get the best possible result and we'll also finally start to unravel the recipe of diabetic remission and that's our aim. So together we can make real difference. Fantastic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you.